Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. Big decision announced by the federal government this week, a decision that many Canadians, many allies of Canada have been waiting a long time to hear. Was Canada going to allow Huawei, the Chinese telecom company Huawei, to be a part of building up 5G networks in Canada? A lot of concern, obviously, about the company's ties to the Chinese government. We saw in the Meng Wanzhou situation just how important Huawei is to the Chinese government. What were the implications of allowing them in the back door, essentially, uh, to these 5G networks are going to be building up in this country? And especially from an American perspective, how intertwined telecommunications are between our two countries. They've already made a decision on Huawei. What would the Americans have made of the decision to allow Huawei in? So we've all been waiting and waiting and waiting. And finally, that decision came down this week. Huawei, along with another Chinese telecom company, ZTE, will indeed be banned from building Canada's 5G networks. This was the prime minister defending the decision and the time it took to make a decision. We took the time. Uh, to carefully analyze the situation, to look at all sorts of factors, uh, to look very closely at what our allies and partners were doing around the world in regards to telecommunication safety. And we uh, made the decision to move forward uh, in a way that will ensure the safety of Canadians as the world moves towards 5G, which will surround us even more. What's the right decision? Uh, maybe took longer than it should have, but the right decision. Now, certainly, I think we can also expect some kind of a response from the Chinese government. But joining us to talk more about why this was the right decision, what the implications are of how long it took us to make that decision. Very pleased to welcome to the program here today, Balkan Devlin. Uh, he's a senior fellow at the McDonald Laurier Institute, also an adjunct professor at the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs at Carleton University. Professor Devlin, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Uh, thanks for having me. Uh, so let me get your reaction. I mean, I, I think this was the right decision, obviously. I think we expected this to be the decision, but until it's made, I guess we didn't really know for sure, did we? Uh, exactly. And, you know, I mean, we, we were very late to the party when they're, you know, we just arrived when they're finally clearing the table. Mm -hmm. uh, better late than never, I suppose. But we were very late to the party. Uh, at least the decision was, uh, was, was finally taken. So it's, you know, obviously and absolutely the right decision. Uh, the, 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 the trouble is, of course, why we were this, this, this late. And not only for the Canadians are asking the question, but I'm pretty sure our allies are also asking the question, why Canada is, is the laggard uh, on this particular issue. For people maybe don't you know understand the, the the issues at play here. Talk about why this needed to be the decision, the the threat potentially posed by Huawei, or at least you know the connections to the Chinese government, the potential followed from our own allies if we were to go a different path. Why did this need to be the decision? I mean, there are two things that one uh, one need to really <clears throat> excuse me, pay attention to uh, why uh, this is is, is is a monumentous decision and a very important one that we should have taken. Uh, frankly, years ago. And number one is that Huawei is, is just not your average uh, you know, private company. Uh, it is effectively an extension of the uh, Chinese Communist Party's uh, regime. Um, there are no uh, big uh, conglomerates in, in, in authoritarian regimes such as China or Russia that are you know, just private companies doing, doing business. We see that with the best problem. Um, in, in Russia, we see this with the big Chinese uh, companies such as Huawei. So, um, by law, they need to, in China, need to sort of uh, uh, provide whatever the uh, necessary access 
to the Chinese uh, Communist Party and its security apparatus of anything that they control. So they are effectively an arm of, 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 of Chinese government. A government that blackmailed Canada, that sanctioned Canada, that kidnapped Canadians yeah. uh, to Michaels and held them hostage, and also used their political and economic power to punish um, others that uh, they feel uh, that, that offended the regime uh, from Lithuania to Taiwan to, to Czech Republic to, to elsewhere. Um, so it is important to understand the nature of this government and what it, that means to have uh, an authoritarian government that is hostile, that did actually uh, target Canadians and Canadian economy before, to provide a way to influence our uh, very critical infrastructure um, with 5G. And that's the second part. What people don't understand or perhaps sort of uh, have a hard time uh, understanding is 5G is, is, is a lot more than just your phones and, and, and a you know, rapid uh, internet. It is really the digital backbone of the 21st century when it comes to anything from automation uh, to uh, you know, developing Web3 to surveillance to uh, defense to, to, to security through healthcare, um, et cetera, et cetera. So the uh, the fact that uh, that will be the basis, that will be really the backbone of the digital economy in the 21st century uh, for Canada uh, is what really makes this, this important. Anywhere from, you know, how you are going to uh, function, uh, how, how, you, how your, your sort of, uh, defense equipment will talk to each other from your F-35s to the satellites to the radar uh, in, in, on, on the bases in real time through these three, uh, 5G networks, etc., are all going to be at play here, and that's why it's very important not to have a hostile power have um, a sort of a, a hold on uh, on, on our, our critical uh, digital infrastructure. So those two things, this is going to be extremely important for the next 20, 30 years, as well as that <clears throat> Huawei is an essentially an arm of the Chinese Communist Party, uh, makes this decision very, very monumental. And that's why it should have been taken years and years ago and not this late. Well, and why wasn't it? Maybe that had something to do. You alluded to the, the two Michaels, and I, I think certainly their situation really led to inaction on the government's part on a whole host of issues related to China, this one included. So maybe that gives us part of the answer, but why, why do you think it took this long? I, I, you know, I think that has been one of the reasons as, as, as forward by, by the government. I don't really find that very um, credible, uh, the particular argument that doesn't... Uh, change the fact that after two Michaels uh, were uh, was released uh, from cap captivity um, and, and the government itself announced that the decision uh, will be coming within weeks uh, back in September, uh, it doesn't uh, at least, uh, you know, explain the delay since then. Um, I, to me, it's, it's, it's a very big, big puzzling component, but partly it should, I think it does reflect uh, this um, reluctance to... Uh, to stand up and, and pay short-term costs for long-term uh, benefits. Uh, yes, that would be, uh, you know, uh, a retaliation uh, from China. There will be, uh, you know, response to it. But as Australia show, as as Liz, uh, uh showed, when you stand up with them, yes, you might pay a price in the short term, but in the medium to long term, you're much more uh, resilient, much more robust, and much more safe and secure, defending your national interests and your companies and your people. Um, Canada 
did not, and, and Canadian government have been very reluctant to uh, cast aside old illusions about uh, how to do business with China and continue to uh, believe that uh, uh, they could just continue with you know, business as usual, despite the increasing aggression and, and hostility the Chinese government is showing towards a uh, rules-based international order, as well as our allies. So that's sort of uh, maybe to, to put it mildly on, on the true nature of, of the Chinese regime, which I think is one of the reasons why we were very reluctant. And the second is, of course, this over-protective, um, over-risk-averse sort of, uh, uh, position, uh, actually putting us uh, in, a, in a worse position uh, in the medium to, to long term. We, don't wanna, we didn't want to pay pennies. Uh, we end up paying you know, uh, dollars instead. Um, so I think those two are, are the primary reasons why this decision has been, um, has been delayed. Do you think there was some pressure from from our allies? Uh, you know that I think they were all waiting to see what we were doing. Obviously, yeah. and certainly from an American perspective, if we were going to partner with Huawei, that might mean that they would have to to make some decisions. So perhaps there was some pressure from our ally. I mean, I I'm pretty sure there was uh, some expectation on our allies, particularly FIFI's allies, on this. And the, the this decision that it would be as such that we will follow. And, and align with, with our key core allies is actually a sort of a foregone conclusion. The, but delaying this and dragging this actually, I would argue, uh, harm uh, you know, Canadian um, standing uh, in the eyes of our allies. Uh, you know, just you know, a good <laughs> example would probably be the, the you know, hearing about the AUKUS deal between you know, US, Australia, and, and the UK uh, from the, the news conference, uh, not before. And that is a deal that goes way beyond just nuclear, nuclear-powered uh, submarines. It is about really technology uh, sharing and emerging technologies. And it looks like that nobody actually even thought about uh, whether to include Canada or not. Um, so that suggests that in the eyes of our allies, we are you know, not necessarily seen as fully aligned and bringing something to the table and ready to act when everyone else is acting. So that actually harmed our standing uh, with our with our core allies, and that would have significant uh, negative implications uh, for our security uh, and prosperity down the road. It's interesting because the government has also promised, and and it's a long-standing promise that uh, you know the entire China policy was was going to be overhauled. <laughs> Obviously, this is a decision that needed to be to be made, but th- th- that that still doesn't preclude the need to address some of these larger issues. So there's a lot more work to okay. do on this, isn't there? Yes, of course. I mean, we still don't have an Indo-Pacific uh, strategy or a policy document. Uh, forget about a, a distinct China uh, policy document. Just to give you an example, I mean, the Netherlands have an Indo-Pacific strategy, right? The German, Germans are, are putting one out. Uh, Canada is a Pacific country. We um, are not. Uh, we didn't come up with one yet. And it was imminent. Uh, for the past, what, three to four months uh, that it was supposed to be out. Um, so I think, again, we're, we're lagging uh, here, uh, and that creates confusion and that creates a disillusion, I would say, among our allies uh, going, uh, going forward. So uh, that is another um, uh, you know, sign that, uh, unfortunately, this government is delaying uh, key decisions as much as possible and only taking them when they absolutely have to. And which is not a which is not a you know, good thing uh, for for Canada going going forward, uh, defending our prosperity and, and security. When it comes to baby formula, that's something that's really seen as an essential. 
So the fact that uh, there are shortages right now is a real cause for concern. Now, the problem is more serious in the United States. In fact, today, the first of several flights bringing infant formula from Europe to the U.S. arrived in Indianapolis. Uh, 39 tons of baby formula being transported by military plane, enough for more than half a million baby bottles. So more still to come. So why are we seeing this shortage all of a sudden? And how is Canada impacted by all of this? There's a company in Kingston, Ontario, Canada Royal Milk. They have a plant there, a plant that opened three years ago, a plant that produces cow's milk and goat's milk baby formula. Canada Royal Milk says it is working with Health Canada to get approval to produce infant formula to sell here in Canada. So why is it that a Canadian company producing baby formula in Canada and has been operating for three years is not selling that formula in Canada. Well, that company sells its product in China. Maybe something a lot of Canadians weren't aware of. So it does leave us still reliant on imports, in particular from Europe, and that's certainly where the United States is looking to right now to address its own shortages. So joining us to, to talk about where this all leaves Canada, why we're seeing these shortages, and, and this whole situation around this company in Kingston, very pleased to welcome to the program here today, Sylvain Charlebois. He's Senior Director of the Agri-Food Analytics Lab at Dalhousie University and is also a Professor in Food Distribution and Policy at Dalhousie. Dr. Charlebois, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Well, thank you for having me. Uh, you know, obviously, we've talked about other shortages and what we would more broadly call the food market, but this isn't something typically we would expect to encounter shortages. This is obviously something that's very problematic when there's shortages. So what's unique about the, the baby formula market? Yeah, a lot of people are, uh, are making a reference to the, to the toilet paper episode a couple of years ago. Yeah. This is not the same thing at all. This is indeed a shortage. Uh, there's just no products to be sold, whereas toilet paper it was more about a supply chain uh, issue, uh, a disruption affecting supply chain. So in this case, uh, what really led to the situation, and, and it's not just in Canada, it's in North America, because main manufacturers of baby formula are located in the United States. And we get most of the baby formula purchase in Canada come from the United States. And Abbott uh, Nutrition uh, was actually impacted by a recall uh, back in February, February 17th. And uh, since then, uh, one of its plant based out of Michigan uh, has been shut down, is not operating. And so it's been talking to the FDA to try to settle things and making sure that the plant actually goes back, goes back to work. And uh, apparently, based on an announcement that was made on Friday, uh, it looks like the plant may actually be back uh, running in a couple of weeks. So that's good news. But still, uh, in America, uh, they, th this shortage has been a top story for a month now. Yeah. And so it was just a question of time before it hit Canada. Yeah, and it's interesting because it highlighted something that kind of got overlooked in the whole debate around, you know, the renegotiation of, of NAFTA. But uh, in, in the new version of NAFTA, the U.S. put tariffs on uh, baby formula from Canada. There's there's trade restrictions with regard to baby formula from from Europe. Again, so it, it seems odd that you get these kinds of trade issues affecting something that's so vitally important. But how have all of those rules and protectionist policies in other countries, how has that affected the situation? Well, you know why Americans actually have trade barriers against Canada 
for baby formula, there are two reasons. One, they knew that the plant was actually going to be built in Kingston by the Chinese. And two, uh, we do have our own trade barriers ourselves to protect our dairy industry in Canada. So it's a tit for tat sort of thing. But what really is concerning in my view is that we, we have, we do have capacity. We do have uh, some domestic production of baby formula in Canada based on based out of Kingston. The company name is Canada Royal Milk. Mm-hmm. It's owned by the Chinese. It's it's partially owned by the Chinese government. Uh, the plant was built uh, in 2017 to 2019. Part of the construction was subsidized by Canadian taxpayers and Ontario Ontarians as well. And that plant started operation back in 2019. Uh, some cow milk is delivered to that plant, and that cow milk, of course, is partially subsidized as well and is protected by Canadians with the uh, with supply management. So this is really probably one of the most ridiculous policies I've actually seen because all of the products, all of it, is uh, is shipped to China at this point. In 2017, they did promise to keep some of the production uh, domestic, 15%, but they never actually applied to Health Canada to get their products approved until just recently. Wow, so this is a facility based in Kingston, Ontario, that is owned by a Chinese company. It's partially subsidized because of how things work with dairy in this country by Canadian taxpayers, and yet all of the product is is shipped to China. Do I have that right? You got it. So right now we have parents panicking, concerned about this shortage of baby formula right here in Canada. But we have a plan in Canada, but all of the production is shipped to China. And we basically support, financially support the production out of Kingston to feed China. <laughs> so you got you got everything right. You're you're on you're on page now. <laughs> well, and that, that's awfully close to the US border. So not only could it be supplying, you know, Canada's needs, this could help address American needs, but in a, in this current situation yeah. it it's it's not doing either, is it? Yeah, I think the calculation, so from, for the Chinese, I think the reason why they built the plant right there is that they, they probably believe eventually bears would, 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 would come down and uh, they would be able to trade with, with the Americans. The, you have to understand the baby formula market is not that attractive economically because it's actually shrinking. Uh, the birth rate uh, in both the U.S. and Canada is, is actually uh, lower now. It's probably going to get lower even more. And so it's not a growing industry. It's a shrinking industry. And that's why you, you've seen a lot of consolidation, only three major players in the U.S. And in Canada, the reason why the Chinese invested in Canada is to get safe supply of milk to China. What's really ironic is that dairy farmers of Canada have always argued, well, we can't really trade with milk because it's heavy. It's tough to trade, it's tough to ship. Mm-hmm. We can't do it. Might as well just serve Canadians. But we needed the Chinese to show us how to do it. Wow. So in the meantime, Canada's reliant on imports as well. So if the U.S. are trying to import more baby formula from Europe, and that's where Canada gets a lot of its baby formula, how, how is this going to affect Canada? Well, over the short term, it's, it's not looking great because, I mean, you've got to ship these things. So we do have Health Canada doing its best to actually allow more products into the game market but you still have to ship them uh, on water. And that will take weeks. I think our best hope 
is to see that plant out of Michigan uh, open again and operate again. I think that's the best hope. And we're probably within two weeks. Initially, at the beginning of last week, uh, the FDA was actually announcing that the plant would open in August. And that's, that's when people start to panic. And that's why the Biden administration decided to step in and do something about it. And so we're probably about two weeks away. In the meantime, of course, parents are still struggling. They're still trying to find product. Uh, the only advice I can give to those parents is to consult with their pediatrician and family doctor to make sure that if you are forced to substitute your product with something else, make sure that it's something else is good for your infants. It's interesting, and, and you wrote about it this week. I didn't realize that, that there is more uh, demand for baby formula in the U.S. because breastfeeding rates between Canada and the U.S. are, are actually quite different, which was surprising. Yeah, so uh, the, uh, I think it has a lot to do with, with social programs we have in Canada. Uh, let's face it, uh, some of the programs we have are pretty generous compared to what Americans have. Right. American mothers are often compelled to go back to work physically uh, sooner rather than later. Uh, and, and breastfeeding at work is, is not really uh, convenient, yeah. uh, let's face it. That, that's probably why... Uh, demand for baby formula is typically higher in the U.S. What was uh, almost unthinkable uh, once before is is now more or less the norm in much of the country. The idea of paying two dollars a liter for gasoline. I remember when we broke the one dollar a liter threshold. How significant that was. Here we are now, where two dollars a liter is increasingly becoming the norm across the country. In fact, that was the average price across the country earlier this past week. By Friday, that had actually dipped down slightly. The average retail price across uh, Canada was one ninety nine per liter. So right around $2 a liter. And it's unlikely that that's going to change anytime soon with demand continuing to increase entering the summer driver season and all of the circumstances that are conspiring to, to keep uh, gasoline prices, oil prices high, those aren't going away. So what can be done to help consumers? Well, maybe that's where government comes in. I'm here in Alberta. Recently, the Alberta government made the decision that the 13 cent per liter excise tax on gasoline would be temporarily removed as a way of helping consumers uh, deal with the price of gasoline. And while the price remains high, it, it has made a difference. We've seen conversations on other provinces. B.C.'s government has talked about direct uh, rebates to consumers on the campaign trail on Ontario. Doug Ford and his PCs have talked about reducing gasoline taxes as well. So it's an, an issue that's getting a lot of attention. But just how much of what we pay at the pump is, is taxes? And, and do Canadians have a good understanding of that? Well, the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, uh, as they do each year, uh, Gas Tax Honesty Day was held a few days ago, and it's meant to call attention to some of these issues and, and add some transparency around these questions, just how much of uh, gasoline prices go back to governments in the form of taxes. Well, joining us to talk more about this issue, very pleased to welcome to the program here today, Franco Terrazano, Federal Director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Taxpayer.com is the website. Franco, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Hey, well, thanks so much for having me on. It's great to talk to you again, Rob. Well, I appreciate you making some time for us here today. Like I say, I think this is a top-of-mind concern for a lot of Canadians, especially as we're now more or less at that $2 a liter threshold across much of the country. What's your sense of, of first of all, how the conversation has shifted around this issue with what we've seen with gas prices lately? Well, it's a kitchen table issue now, right? Because people oh, yeah. are having a tough time. 
affording to fuel up their car on their way to work right now. You know, I'm in Ottawa. There's a gas station right down the road. I'm looking at it here, and, and we're right at about 2 bucks a litre. Um, in Vancouver right now, before coming on, I, I took a quick look online, and they're over $2.20 per litre of gas. So these are some crazy times, and when it comes to economic issues, this has got to be, if not A, the key economic issue facing Canadian families right now. And, you know, we've been putting together this gas tax honesty report for 24 years now, every single year. And the reason we do it is because we want to shine a light on all the different taxes that you pay every time you fuel up. You know, you put now 80 bucks to 100 bucks in your tank, you get a receipt, you see the sales tax on it. But what you might not know is that drivers in places like Vancouver or Montreal, they're paying six different types of taxes every time they fuel up their car. And, you know, of course, there's so many different things going on, especially right now, that influence the price of gas. But our politicians could immediately provide relief by controlling what they can control. And what they can control is how much money they're taking at the pumps through their big tax bill. Well, as I alluded to, and I mean, I'm, I'm here in Alberta, and that, that was a decision that the Alberta government made. I mean, I'm in Calgary. I saw uh, you know, 1719 uh, at the pump driving in today. So, you know, th- I mean, that's that's still a lot for a liter of gasoline, but I mean, that's 13 cents uh, a liter lower than it would otherwise be. So is, is that exa- yeah. an example of the kind of policy you, you think would make sense right now? Yeah, that's exactly the example of a type of policy that we want to see. I mean, kudos to the Alberta government providing that 13 cents uh, of relief. And, and Alberta has the lowest tax bill at the pumps. I mean, it's, it's only about 18% of the pump price. I say only, that still sounds pretty high, but it's uh, far and away the best in Canada. If, you go, if you're driving in Vancouver, um, you're looking at about 75 cents per litre plus that you're paying just in taxes. So if you have a 64-liter fuel-up, you're looking at close to $50 just in taxes. Um, the average in Canada is is more than $0.55 cents a litre. But, Rob, you know what I'm really worried about is not just today and how so many families who have been going through two years of pandemic maybe had some very tough economic um, issues around their own work and are struggling. Um, but what I'm really worried about is, is that this tax bill at the pump is, is only going up under the current federal government's plans. Well, let's talk about that because we've got all kinds of different taxes. Now, some are a fixed uh, level, like a certain certain cents per liter, uh, but others are, are percentage-based, uh, like the GST obviously takes a percentage. Uh, the provincial sales taxes take a percentage. We've got the federal carbon tax that is set at a certain rate, but it's it, the plan is for that to go up as well. So we've got a lot of different kinds of taxes that affect the price in, in a lot of different yep. ways, don't we? Yeah, there's in total, there, it can be up to seven different types of taxes. Let me break that down. You have your provincial fuel tax, you have your federal fuel tax. In some cities like Vancouver, Victoria, Montreal, you're also paying a transit tax. Of course, you have federal sales tax in, in most provinces, uh, or in, in many provinces, you have a provincial sales tax as well. Um, then you have your federal carbon tax, and you even have a second carbon tax that is coming through the pipe from the federal government. Now, let's talk about that big carbon tax bill. We've already seen the carbon tax federally go up three times during the pandemic, um, but it's set to go up to nearly 40 cents per liter of gasoline by 2030. Now, on top of that, you have the Trudeau government bringing in what amounts to be a second carbon tax through fuel regulations, which will add another 11 cents per liter to the price of gas. So by 2030, we are looking at nearly 96 cents per liter on average in Canada 
just on taxes, 96 cents a liter. So that would mean that your 64-liter fuel-up will cost more than 60 bucks just in taxes. All right, so the federal carbon tax applies in provinces that don't have their own or that are part of the federal plan. So that's, I, I believe, Ontario, Manitoba, Saskatchewan, and Alberta, correct? That is correct. But then they also have a, a, a system, let's call it maybe a backstop, that if, you, if you're not right under the federal carbon tax, or right now it's 11 cents per liter of gas, mm-hmm. your provincial government has to put in some type of carbon tax of its own. Now, right, right now it's at about 11 cents a liter, but it's supposed to go up to nearly 40 cents per liter of gas. So that is going to be a huge, huge impact for so many Canadian drivers. And again, we're looking at nearly 96 cents a liter in the total tax bill by 2030. There are provinces, I think it's Quebec and Nova Scotia, maybe others, but uh, those two for sure, that have uh, the cap-and-trade uh, system instead of a direct carbon tax. And, and so that's a little maybe more indirect, but that, that also contributes to, to uh, higher prices at uh, the pump, doesn't it? Yeah, that's absolutely right. So it's a little bit more indirect, but in Quebec, you're looking at about nine, about nine cents per liter from their carbon, uh, from their cap and trade carbon tax. Nova Scotia, very similar to Quebec, except the carbon tax in Nova Scotia, for whatever reason, only applies to about 20% of emissions from gasoline. So they're only paying about two cents per liter of gas right now. But, but let's not forget, right, just after the 2019 election, the Trudeau government made the announcement that they are going to raise the federal backstop to nearly 40 cents per liter of gasoline. Now, we don't have all the breakdown of what it's going to mean for those provinces that have a cap-and-trade carbon tax. But what we do know is that every province, every Canadian driver should expect to see the tax bill at the pumps going up. And it's interesting because it speaks to, I don't know if conflict of interest is the right word, but maybe some governments operating across purposes. So governments that have implemented these policies, which by design, you know, make the cost of uh, products like gasoline more expensive, but also, you know, expressing concern about the the price of gasoline. B.C.'s government, which implemented a carbon tax, obviously mentioned the litany of, of taxes that applied to drivers in B.C., you know, the BC government's uh, looked at uh, direct rebates to consumers with regard to the price of gasoline. What, what do we make of that contrast? <laughs> yeah, yeah. surprise, surprise. Some politicians aren't being exactly consistent with their messaging right. here, right? <laughs> They're saying, well, we need to increase the price of gasoline uh, to solve our environmental issues through carbon taxes. And then when the pain gets really tough, they say, oh, no, no, the price of gasoline um, is too high. I remember a few years back, you had BC Premier John Horgan actually wondering why the, the, gas is, uh, the gas price in BC was so high, and we sent him a bunch of mirrors. Hey, take a look in the mirrors. It's, it's all these <laughs> yeah. different taxes that are driving up uh, the price of gasoline. And, and Rob, you know, I know you mentioned this earlier, and I've mentioned this earlier. We all know that there's different things going on around the world right now that influence the price of gas, of course. Oh, sure. But... Yeah. What can politicians actually can control immediately, right? Canadian politicians immediately cannot control what's going on in, in, in Europe. But what they can control is how much money that they're taking through taxes. And the average right now is 55 cents per liter. And, and that money could stay in Canadians' pockets, or at least a big portion of it. And I think that would go a long way for helping so many struggling families deal with this affordability crisis that we have on our hands. Well, I mean, these taxes raise revenues. So, I mean, I, I suppose one way to do it would be, you know, to use some of that revenue and just kind of write a check, I guess, to, to Canadians, the idea of some subsidies back to drivers. But is, is, it a, is it a simpler and more direct way to just simply lower those taxes? I mean, what, what's the preferred approach here, do you think? That's exactly it. That, that second point that you just said, just cut the taxes, right? Cut out the middleman. 
um, for a few different reasons. I mean, on the one hand, the money that the government would be sending through checks, I mean, that's not free money. Who's going to have to pay for that eventually? Of course, it's going to be the taxpayer, especially when you see these huge deficits, this huge $1 trillion debt that we have with the federal government, but also big debts provincially. So just cut out the middleman. Just cut the tax bill at the pumps. And, And Rob, I have to make this point. We have seen that from our international competitors. We have seen many, many countries step up to the plate during the inflation problem that we're seeing and and have been cutting taxes. We saw South Korea cut its gas tax by about 20%. India did about the same. Italy is also cutting gas taxes. You have Poland that's cutting taxes on food and fuel. You have Spain and France cutting electricity taxes. Um, The last I checked, you had about 11 American states that are cutting either business or income tax uh, rates for a little bit of relief. We've already mentioned Alberta that is providing the temporary 13 cent per liter gas tax relief. Ontario says they're going to be cutting gas taxes. You even have President Joe Biden that said that he is considering gas tax relief. So you have all these other countries, and I just named a few, that are cutting the tax bill at the pump, cutting taxes to provide relief. But unfortunately, we continue to see Ottawa stick Canadians with higher taxes that is making this three decades high inflation even worse. COVID hasn't gone away. I mean, even though uh, in a lot of ways life has been returning to normal, COVID remains with us. And obviously now as we deal with Omicron and its uh, various versions, uh, we've got a virus that's uh, become more adept at immune evasion. Uh, So while vaccinations are are really important in reducing the impact of the virus, reducing the impact on the healthcare system, reducing the likelihood of severe outcomes, it has changed the dynamic in in terms of what we expect from vaccinations and maybe by extension then of the value of having vaccine mandates. The federal government has been resisting pressure. Uh, to change or ease its remaining COVID travel measures. Now, part of that's the vaccine mandate. There's also the random testing and and other measures that do remain in place and and have been blamed for contributing to some of the delays at Canada's airports. But the government insists this is all still necessary. However, one prominent infectious disease expert says it probably isn't. Uh, Dr. Zen Chagla writing recently in the Globe and Mail that the logic behind vaccine mandates for travelers no longer holds. And for the good of public health, we probably need to move in a different direction. So joining us uh, for his thoughts on this and other matters, very pleased to welcome to the program the aforementioned Dr. Zain Chagla, infectious disease physician, associate professor of medicine at McMaster University. Dr. Chagla, great to have you with us here today. Welcome to the program. Hi, thanks for having me. Yeah, I mean, it seems like the challenges are, are piling up these days for infectious disease specialists and, and public health agencies. We're still trying to understand what's going on with this severe acute hepatitis we're seeing in children. Now we're trying to make sense of these monkeypox outbreaks we're seeing in various countries, including Canada. Your thoughts on, on kind of where we're at in, in solving these mysteries and what sort of a challenge these these cases pose right now? I mean, there's, there's, you know, it just underscores the huge value of public health, right? And public health trust in all of this, recognizing that you have to respond to a variety of issues, both locally and domestically and, and uh, internationally, but also that we're a very interconnected world. And, uh, and, you know, it's great that we have information sharing that's very different, but, you know, for example, with monkeypox, there's been long-term transmission of monkeypox in Nigeria and the Democratic Republic of Congo. And, 
you know, I think many of us in the community knew there would be spillover events that would happen soon, and we're seeing it in real time. So, you know, a lot of this may be expected. This is us, you know, in, in, in being very close contact, globalized. Uh, you know, this pandemic has been very much a part of that. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, again, there's got to be a lot of trust in the community to understand that we can handle things, but, but it does take time and it takes the right people doing the right investigations to get there. Yeah, it's the thing. And I mean, you know, country, no country lives in a vacuum. I mean, even North Korea is now dealing with, with COVID. So no country can wall itself off from all of this, doesn't it? It also speaks to the importance of international transparency, international cooperation. These situations uh, affect us all. We're all learning from one another, too, aren't we? Absolutely. Look, we've learned so much from, from much of the world. The United Kingdom was the first one that figured out there was a monkeypox issue and largely probably turned the, the alarm on for many countries to say, should we be starting to look for this in particular populations? You know, I, I think we, we have to give credit. You know, international surveillance is something that is going to be a real uh, important piece of our global infrastructure moving forward. And both in high-income and the low-income world, we really have to put resources aside so that we can communicate, we can share data, we can rapidly do infectious disease surveillance, uh, and that, that really benefits all of us, not just uh, countries that have access to it. Yeah. There is some irony, I suppose, in other uh, infectious diseases sort of bumping COVID from the headlines, even though the latter is is still with us and, and maybe ultimately the biggest threat facing us. But, you know, for a lot of people, life is starting to get back to normal. Travel is starting to get back to normal. Um, you've made the case recently, and it's interesting that, you know, as much as the government wants to hold on to these rules around travel, maybe it is time to end some of these vaccine mandates. So from someone in your position who is obviously very supportive of, of vaccination, the value of vaccination, why do you think we're at that point now? Yeah, you know, I, I think this goes back to that public health trust, right? That, yeah. that we, we invoke measures that make sense when they make sense, but we understand when things don't make sense that we're not going to necessarily punish or, or we're going to make sure people are, are treated equally and their freedoms are respected. And this really comes down to the value of these vaccines. They're amazing at preventing people from getting critically ill, sick, uh, and really attenuating this disease. But we do know that two doses of vaccines probably offers very little protection against infection. But even three doses over time probably wanes down significantly as well. And so when we're talking about mandates creating spaces where people are at low probability of spreading the virus, you know, that may have been true way at the beginning with Alpha and Delta. But with Omicron, everything changed. And, and the, the reality is the person sitting beside you on the flight whether they've been vaccinated or not been vaccinated, you know, is probably at a very minimal extra protection from infecting or causing infection to other people on that flight. And, and when we get to that point, I think we have to really say, OK, what are we doing here preventing people who are unvaccinated getting on flights, getting on trains if their risk is the same as anyone else? Well, it's interesting because it's almost to the point now where the policy is is not really intended to have a practical impact. It's almost more about sort of sending a message about the, the importance of vaccination. And look, that's, that's an important message. But, you know, this kind of policy probably isn't the best way to deliver that message, is it? No, absolutely. And look, you know, if we were to say this is for vaccine uptake from November to now, there's been a rise in full vaccine rates of about right. 3% in the general population over 18. So it's clearly not necessarily having impacts there. 
But also, again, you know, public health is not about, you know, restrictions. It's about resources. It's about, you know, proactive interventions. It's about engagement. It's about stakeholders. And so, you know, if this is really not working, if there's the burden of proof is suggesting that, you know, you're, you're really just causing more grief for some individuals, you know, it's not an effective public health intervention. And again, we do need the public with everything coming on, with monkeypox, with everything else, you know, to be on the side of, of, of everyone else, not necessarily create groups of yeses and nos and people for or against certain values. We're at an interesting moment here with regard to vaccinations, um, you know, with, with the challenges posed by Omicron and its continued evolution, some of the waning immunity from vaccination, even booster shots, and we're trying to maybe you know, ring some benefit from fourth doses for for certain groups. But I think, you know, we're getting to the point, aren't we, where we're going to need a a new arsenal here. What's your assessment of where things stand? Yeah, absolutely. Paul Offit had a really, who's who's one of the vaccine gurus in the uh, United States, had a really lovely editorial talking about, I think we've hit the top end of the value of these vaccines. Yes, in higher risk, immunodeficient, older populations, more vaccines may offer an incredible amount of protection. But, you know, we probably topped out at the community-based protection here. Uh, and really, this is personal protection in that sense. And it, it has to incorporate that. But I think that, that just puts it on stage. There are a number of different clinical trials for different vaccine modalities, which may be more potent, more generalized, deal with variants, et cetera. You know, if one of those comes to the market, you're going to need public trust at that point to come back and get that vaccine. Yeah. And I think, again, if, as long as we keep antagonizing groups and pushing groups aside where there's not a given benefit, you might not get what you want when a new vaccine comes to the market, which really could change the face of this pandemic. Well, it's a challenge, too. I mean, we, we look at our existing platforms to maybe try to tailor it to to some of the, you know, the versions of the virus we're dealing with. It's it's hard to know what's going to be, you know, the prevailing version, say, you know, a few months down the road, the virus seems to be moving fast. So we've got maybe other alternatives like the dream of a pan-coronavirus vaccine or, you know, even the real interesting promise of intranasal vaccines, which we've been hearing some encouraging things about. What's your sense of where this is all going? Yeah, a lot of this stuff is in phase two or preclinical work, you know, so it is progressing. Um, and, uh, and at least some of the animal model data, even some of the human model data looks really, really promising that you're going to get uh, high levels of antibodies where they count in the nose and throat where it may actually have significant population effects. Um, and so, you know, there's a lot on the horizon here. I think you, the way we're going to be vaccinating in a year is going to be very different than the way we're vaccinating now. And so, you know, people shouldn't be giving up hope that these vaccines have hit their wall. I mean, we've done an incredible job. We've come back to relative normal with these vaccines. Um, but, you know, there is probably going to be a new generation of this, and it really is going to probably be more globalized, more variant uh, agnostic, and and even extra modalities like nasal or inhaled. And, And so lots to look forward to. But again, lots of that long game planning to make sure that we have trust and we have people willing to take them when the time comes yeah and, and maybe summer does give us a, a bit of respite especially if we we get through um you know whatever wave we're, we're dealing with right now but uh, do you see sort of the fall the winter as you know when when we could be in trouble again is that sort of the the urgency here and trying to address this situation yeah absolutely look you know this virus is evolving there's new variants coming out by the day very little consequence but some of them are more yeah. um 
but um, but realistically, yeah, I, I think you know when we have our winter pressures, when we typically see respiratory season in general, you know our 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 our, our pressures are going to be tested again amongst a system that is very difficult to deal with surges. Um, you know, it's going to be time, hopefully at that point, we have more tools, but at the time as well, that we have to be very, very focused on making sure that people are as, as vaccinated as they can be. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.